Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 59, The Arab Empire. Last week, we witnessed the end of the Umayyad Caliphate. And before going further, I wanted to take a little bit of time to go over their achievement and their failures. In 624 AD, a little over a hundred years from where we stopped last week, a large caravan with 50,000 dinars worth of goods was traveling to Mecca from Gaza. Leading the caravan was one of the most important figures in Meccan politics at the time, a man known as Abu Saifan, leader of the Umayyad clan and a bitter enemy of the Prophet Muhammad. With him came a young son, the future Caliph Muawiyah. Abu Saifan, with his other Meccan-based ally, Abu Jahl, were alarmed at the rise of Muhammad in Medina and received intelligence that he planned to interrupt the caravan and take its goods as war booty. So Abu Jah set out from Mecca with almost a thousand men, a large number by the standard of Arabia at the time, to protect the caravan and rid Arabia from Muhammad if he decided to attack it. Abu Saifan and his son Muawiyah, rather than join in the fight and risk losing their goods, they decided to use the Meccan forces as cover and take a little known passage to avoid Muhammad and his followers while he was busy dealing with Abu Jahl. What followed is a legendary battle known as Badr, a momentous event in the career of Muhammad that put him on the map. He managed, with only about 350 followers, to decisively defeat the Meccans and kill Abu Jahl in the process. For a few years after, Abu Saifan led a coalition that fought Muhammad and his followers unsuccessfully. Eventually, the Prophet surrounded Mecca and Abu Saifan and his two sons had no choice but to convert to Islam and join the movement. I included this little historical snippet as it serves well as a backdrop to the rise of the Umayyad Caliphate. Basically, within a couple of decades, they went from the bitter enemies of Islam to the leaders of the movement. Not really by their support of the Prophet or lifelong commitment to Islam. Rather, they rose by their political skill and the force of their armies. Was no one ever claiming that they got where they are because of their piety and righteousness? Yet, at least after the Caliph Abdul Malik, they tied up the legitimacy to the face, with Islam being at the core of their government which ultimately led to their demise, as over and over again, the Caliph was challenged by, air quotes, bitter Muslims. The fall of the dynasty was not inevitable. Hisham's reign 
just before the collapse, was a successful one, and put forward a roadmap of financial viability via taxing the rich land of the Caliphate. But with the chaos after his death and the systemic problems inherited, the demise of the Umayyad came quick. Nowadays, the modern Middle East is thought of as a truly an Arab and a Muslim land, something that is never really challenged anywhere. But in reality, after the Umayyad, its ruling class was, at best of times, partially Arab, and most of the times, complete outsiders who did not even know Arabic at the time of their arrival. For example, the Abbasid court was full of Persians, and even in Egypt itself, within a hundred years, a Turkish elite would establish a de facto independent state. The fact that Arabic stayed as the lingua franca, and culturally, the area stayed tied down to the Arabs, is a great achievement that the Umayyad deserve full credit for. To illustrate the difficulty of that achievement, consider the fate of the Arabs with that of the Germanic conquerors who came to rule most of the Western Roman Empire from the 5th century onward. The Germanic tribes became Christian and Latin-speaking relatively quickly and essentially lost much of their culture in the process. The Arabs, on the other hand, retained most of their culture and quickly assimilated the native population to it. And this was not done by mass conversion to Islam, or to be fair, using violence alone. No, rather by a combination of a native demilitarized subject population and Umayyad policies that kept the Arabs isolated from the population and fairly insulated. Not to mention, any way you slice it, the Umayyad state inspired a strong cultural self-confidence that manifested itself in Islam and the Arabic language. So while in Europe, the Germanic tribes craved being Romans, the Arabs immigrating to the Middle East and North Africa never wanted to be anything but Arabs. And that's why, eventually, the whole area became Arab. To further go into this rabbit hole, the diversity of the cultures and languages in the heartland of the Caliphate also ended up being a big factor in the successful Arabization of the land. So in Europe, while Latin and Roman cultural norms dominated, the situation in the Middle East was much more complex. There were Greek-speaking Romans, Persians, Copts, Syrians, and Jews. All of them had their distinct culture and language. The diversity of languages and culturals meant that Arabic was far from being overwhelmed, and it actually became essential. Something like English in colonial India, it ended up 
being the only common language in which the people of a vast empire could communicate with each other. The establishment of this culture and civilization owes everything to the Umayyad caliphs. They expanded it, they protected it from being broken up, and above all, they never compromised its foundation on an Arabic civilization and a Muslim religion. In many alternative universes, an Umayyad governor marries into the Persian royal family or a Byzantine princess and successfully forms a counterweight to the caliphate. But like the Romans, the Arabs simply saw the outside world as a land of barbarians to be conquered and brought to enlightenment or to be ignored. In other words, as I mentioned before, there was the caliphate, the house of Islam, and everywhere else, the house of war. After defeating the Byzantines and the Persians, the Muslims did not come into contact with any powers that was their equals in terms of false or military power. As Hugh Kennedy put it, quote, In a real sense, the Umayyad Caliphate, like the Roman Empire, was a self-contained social, cultural, and economic unit. The distances within it were so vast and there was so much diversity within its frontiers that Muslims did not have the opportunity or the incentive to concern themselves with matters beyond its frontiers. There, in the twilight zone of the House of War, numerous obscure and barbarian people like the Franks and the Anglo-Saxons, but their land were too poor, their merchants too few, and their armies too weak to attract the attention of the rulers of Islam. The modern notion of diplomatic coexistence did not make sense in that world. After all, how can you have an everlasting peace with the barbarians and the hasans? Now, on the trading front, the Umayyad state led to several interesting development. The Mediterranean and the Silk Road essentially became war zones and trading cities like Alexandria and Egypt that depended on those routes died. The Indian Ocean, on the other hand, saw the development of complex routes that extended from East Africa all the way to China, stopping in Arabia and India on the way. Those routes eventually led to Muslim settlement all over these places, and so the extension of Islam to places where the caliphate armies would never reach. This also was started under the stewardship of the Umayyad. Finally, on the religious front, the great old world pillars of Christianity, made up of Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, were broken up. Even something as simple as the name of the Pope in Rome was a mystery 
to much of the Christians in the Caliphate, let alone theological development and doctrinal differences. In antiquity, the trip from Rome to Alexandria was quick and very common. But now, the two countries were so far away that even the most basic information was unknown and the affairs of Rome were entirely obscure to the Patriarch of Alexandria. What was happening in Damascus mattered much more to the Patriarch than anything else happening outside of that Arab empire. And for Islam, when the Umayyad went away, this represented the end of an Arab empire that was Muslim and the beginning of a new Islamic empire that happened to have some Arabs. You see, as Islam became more and more defined, Many pious Muslims felt that they needed a member of the Prophet's family to lead them. An Imam, a religious leader, or even a Mahdi, a messianic figure that will establish justice. The Umayyad were no different than them. If anything, they fought the Prophet in their beginning, and power have corrupted them in their end. What was needed was a pious imam governing the land according to the Quran and the Sunnah. This and this alone would solve all the problems. Now, logistically, on the ground, it wasn't very clear how far away can one be to be considered in the family of the Prophet. The Abbasids named after the paternal uncle of the Prophet, Al-Abbas, were as far away as you can get. Al-Abbas, their namesake, never actually became a Muslim and died as a pagan. The descendants of Ali and Al-Hussein were much closer, and Ali was on the side of the Prophet from early on. Still, initially, the Abbasids managed to sway the public opinion that they, as opposed to anyone else, were especially picked for that job. And to be completely fair, their alliance with the Khorasani military helped a lot more than any familiar relationship to the Prophet. Khorasan was in northeastern Iran and received a sizable group of Arab settlers early on. Now, the grandsons of these early settlers, a mix of second-generation Arabs and Persian converts, became a fearsome army from constantly battling the Turkish tribes in the grasslands of Asia. If we were to think of the Caliphate as four separate armies, scattered in its four corners, then essentially what happened is that the army of Khorasan became better than the army of Syria and simply took over them. And Abu Muslim, the leader of that army, became the link between the Abbasids and the army of Khorasan. 
Abu Muslim would eventually be ambushed and killed by one of the early Abbasid's caliphs after he had served his purpose and was becoming a rival rather than a partner. But we will get there in a bit. For now, I would like to go back to Egypt and the Copts and the transition of power over there. When we last stopped in Egypt, the Copts, specifically the Bashmorites, assisted the Abbasid's armies in overthrowing the Umayyads. And for their efforts, plus the destruction of the tax records, a nice two-year break of the oppressive taxes made everyone in Egypt happy. The Copts felt that they had an understanding with the Abbasids, lower taxes for their support. Unfortunately, after those early years, things became much worse than they were under the Umayyads. Two Persian secretaries came over and started to build a taxation system from scratch, which sparked a rebellion that was quickly suppressed in 750 AD. The new tax regime was to be built with the most successful of the Umayyad policies and the expertise and experience of a Persian administration. Practically, this meant the religious poll tax policy of Omar, where only non-Muslims paid it as jizya, became systemic all over the caliphate and very, very tight. And the land-based taxation reforms under Hisham became further refined, almost back to Byzantine-like efficiency. So, where before, under Omar reforms, converting to Islam meant exemption from the jizya and giving up your land and joining the garrison, the Abbasids changed that policy, where you can convert to Islam and stay in your land. Basically, as trade tax relief with no strings attached, this quickly accelerated the rate of conversions, and with it, the use of Arabic. It also turned Muslims from being mostly Arab soldiers to ethnically diverse farmers. Within two decades, the farmers rebelling against the authorities would be made up of both Christians and Muslims, rather than only Christians like the previous rebellions. Now, demilitarized Muslims farmers would be a sink. Unlike their Christian neighbors, they would not be too happy when a taxman comes in in the middle of a famine. Also, this is where Coptic will start a very quick decline and all of Egypt would start using Arabic on day-to-day life. That's the big picture anyway. In Fustat, the Abbasids essentially kept things as is. Governors came from the outside, either from the Abbasids' extended family or the Khorasani military elite. Sahib al-Churta was left to insiders, members of the same influential families that came at the time of the conquest. 
the garrison, the soldiers of Egypt, joined Masr, were still the grandsons of those original conquerors. And Khurasani troops did not linger long in the province. The first governor was the uncle of the caliph, and he maintained relative independence from the central government. Since we didn't really get to talk much about the caliph, the first Abbasid caliph was a little-known individual, nicknamed as Al-Safah, the butcher or the bloodshedder. He spent most of his four-year reign in hunting down members of the Umayyad family and suppressing minor revolts like the one in Egypt, which meant he let his circle of influence run provinces semi-independently while he consolidated his power. So, Abu Muslim ended up being the king of Khorasan in all but name, and the caliph uncle in Egypt, and eventually Syria and Palestine, ran things his way as well. Al-Safah's main legacy is passing the throne semi-successfully to his brother, Al-Mansur, who, in all but name, was the real founder of the dynasty. In a way, the Abbasids so far have been a tool of the Khurasani military to rule the Muslim world, and when Al-Safah died, it was still a mystery if they will ever become more than that tool. So, at his death, the center of power was basically around three men, Abu Muslim in Iran, the Caliph uncle in Egypt and Syria, and the Caliph younger brother and presumed heir, Al-Mansur, a brilliant politician who had spent a lot of time and resources earning the trust of the defeated Syrian army. As destiny would have it, when the Caliph died, Al-Mansur and Abu Muslim were together making the Hajj, a pilgrim to Mecca. So, when the uncle claimed the title Caliph, Abu Muslim and Al-Mansur made common cause. He was soundly defeated and eventually killed. Shortly after, Al-Mansur invited Abu Muslim to his camp, where the legendary general was ambushed and killed by the orders of the new caliph. And that's how Al-Mansur turned the Abbasids from a front to the Khurasan military to an actual ruling dynasty. After the elimination of his two rivals, the caliph set out an ambitious program to centralize his government based on a brand new city that will serve as his capital and the capital of the caliphate for the next 500 years or so. Baghdad in Iraq In Egypt, the dead uncle was replaced by a Khurasani general named Abu Un. His administration was, in the words of the history of the patriarchs, quote, insecurity, peace, 
in great joy and gladness. Essentially, in the beginning, a lot of those who would be rebels and those struggling with the taxes converted to Islam, which relieved a lot of the pressure on the government and allowed for that period of peace. For the Coptic hierarchy, the period basically saw the conversion of a lot of the problem folks, the guys who wanted to have concubines and the such. But more importantly, independent-minded monasteries with financial resources that allowed them to keep their distance from the patriarch could not survive being independent anymore due to the base of conversions and the administration of the church also became much more centralized. The only trouble that Pope Michael faced for the rest of his reign did not come from Egypt or the Muslim administration. Rather, it came from the Miaphysite Church of Antioch. In essence, with the chaos of the transition of power and the Abbasid rise, the Antiochian Patriarchy became contested. The Caliph intervened and appointed the Bishop of Haran, modern Jordan, a certain Isaac. Isaac knew the Caliph personally, as the Abbasid's home before the rise was his territory. This appointment ruffled the feathers of many Syrian bishops, who felt that they alone decide under patriarch, not the caliph. Eventually, the caliph brutally killed the loudest two bishops who opposed his patriarch. And the rest of them stayed quiet, but never really accepted his appointment. To solidify his position, Isaac reached out to Michael in Egypt, and the tone was not very diplomatic. Basically, it was something along the lines of, the caliph appointed me as the patriarch, so publicly support me and let the troublemakers in Syria know, or else. Michael, for his part, delayed as much as he could, but he was being pressured by the governor to support Isaac. Eventually, to get out, he assembled a synod of bishops. But they too kicked the matter to him. Finally, resigned to his fate, he refused to confirm the caliph's patriarch and sided with the Syrian bishops. The governor, Abu Un, not particularly interested in disturbing the beasts by arresting the patriarch, also took his time before sending Michael's answer to the caliph. Or Isaac. Finally, in a lucky break, Isaac died on his own and sort of solved the problem as far as Michael was concerned. The actual problems of the Church of Antioch was not solved so, and the Caliph more or less kept intervening. But like I said, Michael successfully managed to dodge their problems and not get involved. So, in other words, by the reign of Al-Mansur, the Coptic church link with Antioch was severed. 
This completely left the Coptic Church on its own, as communication with the outside world was not practical. And inside the Caliphate, Jerusalem was solid in the hands of the Chalcedonians, and Antioch was just breaking apart. Back in Iraq, Al-Mansur, not excited about the prospect of powerful semi-independent governors, made it a policy to change governors quickly, especially if they're outside the family. Abu'un lasted three years. Then he was replaced by three back-to-back governors, all of whom lasted between one and two years. The fourth, Yazid ibn Hatim, was a very close advisor to the caliph, and he stayed on for an unprecedented eight years, which was needed as al-Mansur was facing a rebellion from the family of Ali, and they sent representatives to try and sway the garrison in Egypt to their cause. Even so, it is peripheral to our narrative. I would like to briefly go over these rebellions, as they will eventually lead directly to the Shia sect of Islam and the third incarnation of the Caliphate to rule in Egypt, the Fatimids, coming in in 300 years or so from now. Basically, the Abbasids came to power and the banner of being from the house of the Prophet. Yet, the Ali branch of the family had a much stronger claim. Al-Safah and then Al-Mansur made a serious effort to win over the Ali branch, and to a considerable extent they had succeeded. The branch of the family was honored guests at court with high pensions, a marked improvement from their time under the Umayyads. But a few of them wanted more. So, they went into hiding, hoping to eventually claim the caliphate for themselves. By 763, two brothers of the Ali branch rose up in a revolt, but it ultimately failed miserably, with one of them only managing to get 300 soldiers to follow him. They did send representatives all over the caliphate, so, including Egypt, which made al-Mansur nervous, and which why we got a governor lasting for eight years. At any rate, what is important to us is this can be considered the beginning of the Shia movement. Specific members of the Ali family were designated as the Imams, the leaders of the movement. Eventually, some of those Shias would end up in North Africa and form the Fatimid Caliphate. But that's a story for another day. For now, after 23 years on the throne of St. Mark, once that saw multiple rebellions, famine, war, and the overthrow of the Umayyads, Bob Michael died in 768 in the midst of a land that was quickly transforming 
and a Christian population that was losing numbers fast. Following him was the head of the monastery of St. Macarius in Wydil Natrun, a monk priest named Mina, our 47th patriarch, one who will follow his story next time. In addition, I have some housekeeping news. It is summertime, which means I will have to give myself a little vacation. Not to mention, this upcoming period is extremely difficult to put a story together. Multiple sources who say different things. Not enough modern scholarship that puts it all together. And just a lot of obscure little things that are important to our story. But the scholarship is not easily accessible. So, I'm going to start dialing down on the frequency of the episodes. I'm aiming for one every couple of weeks. But depending on how things go, and maybe a little longer than that. As a reminder, if you've gotten this far into our narrative, I would say that there is something there that you like. Consider supporting the podcast in whatever way you can. Trust me, it goes a long way. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time.